I'm Eric Bronco, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, it's going. How's it going with you? It is going splendidly. I have some amazing news that we're also going to uh, offer as an opportunity for our listeners. The news I have, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you've certainly heard me yammer on and on and on about Video Palace. Well, there is a Video Palace book that is a spinoff book. A book of the podcast. Not exactly. Okay. It is a book that kind of expands the world of the podcast. So yeah. so it's called Video Palace in Search of the Eyeless Man. And it's kind of a deep dive into lore surrounding the Eyeless Man, who is kind of a character in in this show. Not, uh, not kind of. He is definitely a character in, in, in the show. Yeah, he's a mysterious kind of a force of potential antagonism maybe or we don't exactly know i mean i know but you know the characters don't (laughs) you're not saying um yeah (laughs) i'm going to talk a little bit more about this as my short end but we wanted to give away a copy of the book autographed by me you lucky (laughs) you lucky so-and-sos and Ilya, you have the information about how people can get the autographed copy of the book uh, that's right. Yeah, we're going to do a giveaway. We'll put a link in the show notes, or I'll, we'll actually, we'll put the uh, instructions on how to enter in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Eric Bronco, you can go to camnoir.com and click on the episode, uh, scroll down to the show notes, and voila, there will be the instructions. It'll probably be something pretty simple. You'll have to follow us on Instagram or do something like that. Uh, and then if you are on Instagram, I'll make sure that we have another post about this with the instructions in that on how to enter for the book as well. So uh, you can find us at, at the Cinepod on Instagram or go to camnoir.com and uh, click on the Eric Bronco episode, which you're listening to right now. And uh, I will go into more detail later, but I, I just wanted to say, you don't have to have listened to the podcast to enjoy the book. It's a book of short stories by some pretty well-respected short story writers or horror fiction writers, including one of my personal favorites, John Skip. I was very excited, John agreed to write one there's a guy named owl going back uh he's awesome rebecca mckendry who a lot of horror fans are going to know about and it's basically a book of short stories that tie into the mythos and expand the mythos but if you have never heard the podcast video palace it will make total sense to you you'll have no problem following it and if you have watched it or sorry watched it if you've listened to <laughs> if you've listened to video palace then uh then you'll enjoy it all the more so hopefully yes that is that is the idea and we're hoping that uh it'll generate enough interest maybe we can get a second season going or maybe some other uh interesting correlated stuff within the universe of video palace which uh as one of the people who kind of helped build out the whole backstory and mythology of it it has got a rich and insane backstory so i hope that it does well enough that we can get more of this out to the world because it really is a cool story you've got a cult following i mean you've definitely got some fans i mean that that podcast 
podcast has taken on a life of its own, hence the book. So, oh, you know, for sure. Yeah, no, yeah. no. I mean, it, it's definitely uh, many, many times a week on Twitter, people shout it out. Sometimes they find out that I had something to do with it and reach out to me directly. It's something I'm really proud of. Honestly, I'm just really proud of it. It's one of the projects that I was able to do in my life that turned out pretty much exactly the way that I hoped it would. And as a director, that almost never happens ever. So it was very exciting to kind of see that go through to, to that degree. Also, like working with talent like Chase Williamson, Devin Sedell, Larry Cedar. Like we just had an amazing, amazing cast. It was so, so fun to work with this cast. And you know what? I'll, I'll go on the record too. It's really good. And I didn't listen to it when you were promoting it before. It took, I came to it, you know, months later and boy, it was, it was really well, that's good. That's the nature so, of podcasts. Yeah. You can sort of discover them uh, whenever. And if you are listening to this, by the way, you can go subscribe to Video Palace and listen to all 10 episodes right now for free, wherever you're listening to podcasts at all. And uh, <laughs> probably wherever you're hearing this. Yeah. So. <laughs> same, same device you're listening to this on. Anyway, Ilya, let's go ahead. And uh, before we get to our close focus, Ilya, who is on the show today? Eric Bronco is on the show. And Eric Bronco is a extremely talented young DP. He's not, and I, and I shouldn't say young, he's not green. He's like not fresh out there, but he is a young man who uh, is- I hate it when they're younger than me and they're successful and good. <laughs> oh, it makes me mad. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Roman Vosianoff. Oh, anyway. here, here, you know what? Uh, well, I'll take it a step further. He's also incredibly charismatic. And oh. it's like, I, I know. And yeah, I think he, he started off as a, and we talk about this a little bit, he started off uh, in front of the camera. So it's like... Uh, Stay yeah. in your lane, handsome man. <laughs> Uh, Eric, Eric Bronco is fantastic. So he, he's a wonderful human being. We had a great conversation and we're going to get to it right after Close Focus. And I'm really, really delighted. Of course, the reason that his show is dropping right now is uh, the movie that he shot, which got a lot of buzz at Sundance this year, was the 40 year old version. And yeah, he is um, he's going to be definitely one to watch. He's definitely got a, uh, a, a hot career building, I believe. I predict that's my prediction. That's your prediction. So handsome and talented and charismatic. Screw you. Know, you. <laughs> Screw you. Anyway, he's definitely uh, he, he's making the most of, of of his abilities. He's uh, super social out there. I mean, I, I the, the guy, the, you know, he's going to be a force of nature. Just you wait. And uh, you recorded this uh, last year at Sundance in the before times. Well, no, no, we it were... was this year. It was this year. It was, it was, you know, it was almost been a year now. It was uh, January 2020. So it was, bef- you know, it really, when news of the pandemic started breaking, I think it was actually like maybe right before I went to go see this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, um, and there was a lot of discussion at, at Sundance. And of course, now we know that there probably were some number of people who may have been infected there. That might have been a, a spreading How event. would you know? Because at Sundance, every time I've been to Sundance, you get sick right after Sundance. Yes, that that's really common. Thankfully, uh, I did not get sick, so I'm I'm very glad. But I, 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 I did, didn't get I didn't get sick the last time I was there, but I was also there for under a day. So uh, I remember maybe a day or two before I was leaving, I went into the drugstore and I said, "Hey, by any chance, do you have like you know surgical masks?" And the person behind the counter started just laughing and laughing. They were like, "Oh man, we had 300 arrive and 300 left, like." you know, within an hour or like the same day, like all of the masks that came in, all of them went out. And I was like, that, wow, that's, that will that's be a lingering thing of, of Sundance and probably all film festivals, but especially Sundance. I bet, I bet for the next several years, people will just wear friggin' surgical masks every time they go see a movie. In fact, here, I'm calling it right now. If you have a film that plays at Sundance, the next time they have an actual festival, make surgical masks with your movie's logo on it and pass them out. People will wear them all day. <laughs> Uh, you know, this is almost foreshadowing for, I'm not for wrong. Mon- 
for for my short end actually, and I'm not, I don't want to I don't want to give it away, but uh, let let's get let's move to close focus. Let's let's what what is the burning topic of uh, of the day? What do, what do we need to discuss? Uh, well, you and I uh, like like last week we we kind of each had uh, one thing, and mine actually was given to me by our producer Alana Cody, and it is an article in the Hollywood Reporter called how top cinematographers are working with new safety protocols and i uh, ooh, ooh. I, who who are some of these top cinematographers <laughs> i mean some some pretty amazing ones who uh, maybe have even been on our show so well, uh, if they've been on our on our show you know they're a top cinematographer uh, that's how ips, that's how ips it works so facto they're they're the top ones <laughs> that's exactly but, uh, right faden papa michael who has been on twice and is about to be on a third time Faden is in there. Greg Frazier, Dan Lauston, of course. Shape of Water, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. and you know, maybe, on the uh, show, of course, yeah. <laughs> maybe well known. Uh, John Brawley, John Brawley, who we, who we just had on recently for the Great. So yes. yeah, and what and what are these DPs, these top DPs, talking about? Well, you know, I think that it kind of all all goes to the pullout uh, quote that's kind of at the top of the article. It's not a very long article, but my approach is assume people around you have it. So basically, <laughs> okay. uh, it, it's talking about how to finish uh, the Dune shoot and some of the other stuff that, that's been going on. They've been employing bubbles and, and using a lot of the safety protocols. Uh, what's cool about the article to me is that it sort of shows like we can keep working. We, work can commence. And I think that as you were telling me, like camera shops are, are starting to tick up in terms of business. I have my stupid light kit on ShareGrid and it has been renting out nonstop. It's out right now. Tell, um, tell everyone how much you rent that kit for. Oh my God! It's it's like thirteen bucks a day. It's uh it's a GVM, which stands for Great Video Makers, and uh, it's actually a pretty good little little bicolor three three light light kit. It works good for interviews and stuff. Um, all all of our friends who work in in professional major rental companies are now uh are are, are now have their blood boiling because they they can see that this is the apocalypse, the beginning of the end. <laughs> well, they can they can make they can make merciless fun of me. I just picked it up because I needed like a small uh, LED light kit, and I didn't want to spend thousands of dollars to get something that I wasn't going to use very much and the day I picked it up I'm like you know I've never put any of my gear on share grid let me this this kit is a $300 light kit what if I just stick it up on share grid and see what it goes for and and it, it, it goes for $13 a day <laughs> $13 a day that that is $11 a day in my pocket every day it goes out oh man you're, yeah. you're gonna be renting that a lot of times to uh, make your make your money back <laughs> <laughs> well 20 20 times I'm, I'm pretty close actually um no but i was just kind of using it as a, as a test uh case for uh maybe more expensive gear that i might put up on share i think grid. it's also a wonderful example of how share grid will uh will take anything you can put whatever you want up there and you oh, know, yeah. whatever the market will bear and you could, so you could list your iphone camera on share grid and they would rent that out <laughs> i love share grid i think share grid's great and i've rented from them many times but I, and it was I also sh- i believe i believe it was my short end one time many years I, ago i think they are uh dangerous to real productions and i'm not going to say the devil but i'm going to say they they certainly have a long way to go before uh i feel uh, warm and fuzzy for them i think that for a lot of this okay i'm sorry this is such a such a diversion this, yeah, from, yeah from we're, our, we're really getting far afield close of the, focus, but <laughs> i just want to say in defense of share grid oh um I, if I were making a uh, a major movie, or if I was making a movie with a real budget, I would never consider never getting stuff in from a Sugar. million years. Yeah. But when I'm doing something like my web series, Twenty Seconds to Live, and I need to get an a thirteen dollar light kit. You, no, you actually, we we rented uh you know an Area M eighty uh, off of off okay. of, off of it, and I, and I and I don't have 
production insurance so I can buy their insurance right there. And it's like, I just need one big weird item. Uh, and I'm, and I don't need to go get someone's whole truck and we're not going to go get a giant, uh, insurance policy. ShareGrid actually works out really well for stuff like that. I don't think it's, I mean, I'm sure that there's someone who's made a big movie on it. I think that that sounds like insanity to me because you'd be piecemealing stuff, but you can also find locations. Like if you're looking for sound stages and stuff, there's all kinds of random shit on there. So, you know, it's, it, I, I do think it has its place and, uh, you know, it is definitely the Airbnb of camera rentals. Sure. <laughs> Have you ever had a bad Airbnb experience? I've only had one Airbnb experience in my life. Uh, all, all of my Airbnb experiences, well, actually, I take that back. One was okay. All, all of them have been sort of like... Oh, I I'm had a really st- good one. When I oh, went good. to Tribeca a few years ago, we t- we stayed in an Airbnb in New York. It was great. I, I'm sure our listeners don't want to hear us talk about this anymore, but they do probably want to hear about all of these top DPs being safe on set. And we'll put a link to the article in our show well, notes as well. And again, I, I think that I think that there's like an optimistic undercurrent here, which is it is possible to go back into production right now. It's it is possible to do it safely. And I think a big part of that is that we understand COVID much better now. We understand how it spreads. And actually, I think that I have been operating in my personal life the way that this DP is quoted as saying in that I kind of assume everybody that I meet is they've got it. And uh, although I know statistically that's probably not the case, it's just you know, be, being very safe about it. And, you know, I think it's probably we're going to look back on this time and we're going to see that the movies that got made were things were the safest were obviously things that can be shot outdoors, <laughs> things animation <laughs> and, and yeah, things where people could do a lot of the work remotely. But I, I think that like in terms of like actual production, you know, if you were making deliverance today, it probably wouldn't you probably wouldn't be making a, a huge covid risk out of your production. There's a way to do that something like that safely where gravity so yeah <laughs> yeah well because that's a really small crew and bubbles do work i think that it has to be somewhere between uh you know a totalitarian dictatorship and uh the honor system in order to make sure that people aren't violating the bubble and you do have to like i mean i, I think it's probably something that they can even handle contractually like you're not going to interact with anyone you know without prior approval without that person quarantining or something and uh constant temperature checks and all that stuff i mean my friends who are in production like my friend i don't i think you know him mark coyview who's a special effects guy he does like smoke and fire and all kinds of you know stuff like that he he's been working pretty steadily and when i talked to him about it he said yeah on the shows that he's on they do a covid swab test three times a week on on everybody symptoms or none and those tests are expensive. They're like two fifty each. So that's going to drive up your production uh, budget. If you have a crew of, you know, 70 people, like do the math. That gets expensive really fast. Yeah, uh, real, real fast. And uh, I'm sure there's going to be some bulk pricing with that kind of testing going on. But still, it's, it's, a, well, it's a line the, and, item. And the yeah. tests are going to get cheaper and more effective. And, you know, I mean, like they already have cheaper tests that are just less accurate. And so, you know, we're going to have to figure out a way to go back into production, or I should say, we already have figured our way to go back into production. And I think that's the uh, undertone of this article that I'm personally reading optimism out of. I think it would be just as easy to not read optimism in in this uh, Hollywood Reporter article. But, you know, it's good for it's good to know that there's a safe way to do it. And hopefully we won't hear news of a giant wave of people in the production industry uh, who who all have COVID. Yeah, uh, hopefully not. Um a major market research company called uh, Moffat Nathanson 
basically did a survey of uh, box office for the domestic market for the U.S. And they determined that it's been an 81% reduction of normal, which, uh, which, yeah, I know that on the, the time that they closed, the time that the theaters closed, we'd already had a couple of months. We knew we had most of a quarter that had gone by. So, but anyway, so the point is this, is that theaters with these huge declines, huge declines, no one's got that sort of uh, operating margin where they can continue to keep the lights on, keep, keep working for, for long. If you are not, if you're, if you have such a huge reduction in, in income, there's been some people out there speculating that the theater chains, the theater businesses, they're going to have to pivot in some way before we return to normal if they want to stay in business. And that could include like looking at somehow uh, getting into, you know, content development, figuring out other sorts of deals with uh, with other entities. A lot of the uh, rules that were in place that would prevent a media conglomerates from owning everything have kind of been loosened or weakened over the years. And so we could see theater chains deciding that they're going to get into production and making deals with streamers and networks and everyone else. Uh, or they could find some other new fangled way to deliver, distribute uh, media. I don't know what that is, but um, it's... Well, I know that like uh, Alamo Drafthouse or Drafthouse Cinemas, they're doing like, they have a streaming channel that's kind of all their own hmm. and it's a way to kind of support them and uh there, there's a few of them like actually the my my alma mater the enzian theater in maitland florida uh is doing something similar where they are you know they're getting like the license to be kind of like it's sort of a pay-per-view thing and they get some kind of a cut of it i mean you know really what they should do I, <laughs> easy for me to say but like what i keep thinking is like well what do they have really when you get down to it they got a bunch of big rooms they should just like rent them out to amazon as amazon warehouses until everything can come back <laughs> like they just need to store shit in there because yeah, that's you know, not gonna fly <laughs> pull, not gonna pull all the <laughs> chairs out and stack up a bunch of boxes to the ceiling like I've, i i i honestly feel like there's got to be some way to use that space until we can uh, safely return uh, to the cinemas because I think as uh, Christopher Nolan's tenant has unfortunately shown us the American theatrical market is just not healthy enough to support a theatrical release at the moment. Yes, uh, Tenet slipped to number two uh, at the box office this week. There was another movie that that opened with a uh, 3.6 million total which was enough to make uh, yeah. Tenet. I still want to see Tenet. It kills me. I mean, you know, I, I, I oh, it's, it's, ver- it's high on my list as well. Yeah, it's super frustrating that uh, that we can't do it. But, you know, I feel like sticking to your guns with a theatrical release is uh, sort of a suicide pact for U.S. Uh, At least for the U.S. Yeah. Obviously, uh, in, in the rest China, of the world. Yeah, yeah everywhere else the rest, is doing The rest well. of the world is like moved on with their lives. And uh, and and we're still yeah. uh, struggling here. Not Brazil, but for the most part, yes, a lot of places. Well, and the whole world there. actually, a, a second wave is kind of upon us, and uh, and COVID numbers are up everywhere, but he, here they're especially uh, shitty. So, hey Ben, let, let, you know uh, we've been yakking for quite a while. Let's get to the interview with Eric Bronco. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Eric Bronco, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you for having me. Tremendous work with the 40-year-old version. That's at Sundance right now. It's getting a a really, really great reaction. It's one of the most buzzed about movies at the festival right now. Uh, I just came from it, and I'm going to start this interview uh, slightly differently than we do other interviews. Uh, I want to go immediately into something that might scare a few of our listeners. It's tech, uh, but we generally don't talk about a lot of tech. But the tech is, is that you shot on film, and you shot black and white and you shot on like a film stock that probably hasn't been updated in 20 plus years at least yeah like 40 plus years 
<laughs> so, so, uh, and good on you for this because there's so many people who choose to go black and white actually shoot color and then they are given themselves the out that it could still be a color thing later. Yeah. And you didn't do that. Yeah. yeah your, your film is 5222. Your is, film is. Your it f- is black and white. Now, there is some color. There is. Oh, no, no. It's uh, 98% black and white, I should yeah. say. Yeah. Well, the, uh, a lot of the night exteriors were actually shot on color stock. Uh, uh, because of the noise and sensitivity? Yeah, just 52. Double X is a, is a 200 ASA film. And it was, you know, it was the kind of thing where it's like we could have, you know, we, we probably could have afforded a few days of condors and, and lights to, down the end of the block for that kind of stuff. But I'm born and raised in New York. The director, Rada Blank, was born and raised in New York. We wanted it to be a very New York movie. And like Condor at the corner raking light down the block is not what night looks like in New York. Not at all. And so so we really had to kind of try hard to figure out what what our night look was going to be. And it turned into really just leaving our base base exposure and ambience was based on just what the street was. And then we would ping with little little sources from like a building across the street and things like that. But for the most part, we went available at night. So where does the decision come to for this movie to be black and white? Is it in the script? Is it, it was in, on descri- the title page of the script. The, the, the uh, script says this, script, this movie is in black the, and white. The draft of the script that I got said 40-year-old version, a New York tale in black and white. Nice. <laughs> so. but, but, but how wonderful for you, too. I know many cinematographers who never get to shoot a feature film, never get to shoot in black and white, and never get to shoot black and white feature film film yeah. so so you did all this and yeah. uh and, and i know you've shot several features before but you got to do this <laughs> and have it end up at sundance which is right? which, is, amazing. which is tremendous and we got to talk a little bit about the creator of this of course mm-hmm. you know we got to talk about rada tell me about that relationship how you come on board and you give me the synopsis of her because she seems like uh, you know clearly uh, she's a star her star is on the rise yeah absolutely. and this movie is only going to to further enhance that mm-hmm yeah, so I've known Rada for a couple of years now. I think we first met in like 2014, I think, at a festival in Philly called Black Star, which is like a great festival. And it's kind of like a family reunion. Like everybody that goes to Black Star goes every year, really. And you know what I mean? You kind of like show up, you see the same people. It's like a party for the weekend. Also with amazing films. So, so yeah, I mean, she, I was a regular there. She was a regular there. And I think that's how we first met. And, you know, it's one of those things where we just run into each other at different places. I think, you know, we saw each other a couple of times at Sundance. I had a film here in 2017. And 2018? Uh, yeah. not, no, I oh, missed, was it, was Clem- I missed 2018. Oh, I, I I'm three Clem- for four. Okay. I, I, wow. Good, good, good for you. So, so Clemency was 2017. Clemency was 2019. 2019. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry, I was here, okay. I was here with a short film called Night Shift in 2017. I hung out with Rado much then. And then in 2019 opening night, I randomly sat next to her at the premiere of, um, of Native Sun. No, oh, Native Sun. Um, yeah, yeah. So we were like. Maddie's movie. Yeah. 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 So we were here. Uh, it was like randomly Lena Waithe, Rada, and me at Native Sun. And that's actually where they, where Lena was like, if you're having problems, I'll just executive produce your movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, so it's funny. Like the whole team was kind of randomly put together that night. But yeah. So that when uh, I think I had shot a, I shot a film called Cap that won another festival, the American Black Film Festival, which is in Miami. And the whole thing with them is they hold like a short film competition and whatever the short film that wins, it goes on to HBO for two years. That's kind of their like thing. So I shot this film Cap that won that award uh, and that was in black and white. So I think the combination of like kind of knowing me, having seen Clemency and then having seen this other thing that was in black and white and like got some acclaim, I think made her reach out to me. Nice. I don't want to give anything away from the story, but it's a story about an artist. It's a story about, though, I think it's much more inclusive than that. I would say artists everywhere. Anyone who's ever had to struggle for their art 
And it's an underlying theme that I wish were in more things, but I feel like there's a little bit of a current of this in Sundance this year at 2020. And that's the idea of being a sellout. In my generation, there was almost nothing worse than you could be than Mm. a sellout. And I got to say through the 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s, I felt like that still sort of existed. But basically since the early 2000s to till now, it almost seems like in particular the youngest generations can't wait to sell out. It's not just them. There's a lot of people who can't wait to sell out. And this movie... Uh, really delves down into that. Tell me your take on the concept of sellout and art versus commerce. I mean, probably the willingness to sell out, right, is probably based on the fact that it's so hard to make a living as an artist, right? So it's like, and I think it's getting especially, harder and harder and harder. In New York. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's like it's hard everywhere, but but really, if you want to talk about big cities that are expensive, that's the yeah, right. That might be the hardest. So it's funny, I talking about like this idea of selling out and how like people are, are into it. I worked with a, uh, I shot a commercial, shot a commercial for like a kind of well-known like restaurant, restaurant tour in New York. And we were just shooting, you know, shooting the shit as we were driving in the past van. And, and he was like, my dream is to sell this restaurant and see it in every mall. And he was like, that's my dream is to, <laughs> is to get a check, walk away millionaire. And then just start another restaurant and sell that one. I someday wish to make the Olive Garden. Yeah, right. Exactly. That was his life. <laughs> But, but you know what? I actually think that if you're honest about that, though, if you say, like, from the get-go, this is a money grab, that's actually somehow better than comp- yeah. compromising your artistic principles for the sake of money, where you know that something should be another way, and you decide well, to go against your better judgment in order to please a third party, who, frankly, uh, their opinion actually probably shouldn't matter in that yeah. regard. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's, you know... It's very punk. It's very DIY. The whole concept of like, you know, there's almost nothing worse than you can do than than compromise and sacrifice yourself for someone else's artistic vision that's not yours. And you do it for the sake of money. Yeah. And and I think that that really comes through at the end of the movie. And I was like, I was applauding. I was like, thank Uh thank goodness. I was like, what what a great ending to that movie. It's so satisfying. Yeah. 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 yeah, Totally. Yeah. We got like full on cheers in the in our screening (laughs) yesterday. And it's it's a friendly audience in a festival, of course. It's a it's a it's a it's a safe space for, for that sort of especially thing, the premiere it was like yeah. a quarter of the theater worked on the movie so yeah. it's like you know what I mean <laughs> uh, absolutely but you know there's actually there's a whole other segment of Sundance now which is all dedicated to big brands and advertising and it's almost like completely off the radar like almost no one knows this exists it's like invite only in this mm. thing but boy are the people in there so happy and excited about how they're going to be bending people's artistic visions to get their marketing oh, messages yeah. away so yeah, yeah, yeah. and so it's it's really fun to see an, a movie that is unadulterated like i really feel like rada blanks i feel like her vision is on the screen like i, I, oh, mean, yeah. it, I mean and that's yeah there's a wonderful gritty quality that just comes with with film in general and i gotta call you like there's so much contrast in this like typically a comedy and i'm not gonna say this is a broad comedy it's not it 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 is uh it's i hate the the term dramedy but it is a drama with a lot of good laughs along Mm. the way but it's contrasty were you using a contrast viewing glass were you working with a monitor what which ways did you determine your your levels of this thing because it's like you've got wonderful whites incredible darks and then these one these spectacular gradations that go all through it and stuff that looks uncontrolled on the street stuff that was clearly lit like in the recording studio tell me yeah. tell me a little bit about like what your inspiration was for for going for this look i mean it's um, like it's it's great so at our first meeting i brought a suitcase full of like photography books like all my my favorite kind of black and white New York photography book. So it was like the work of, uh, of like Bruce Davidson and Matt Weber and Gary Winogrand. Um, and we were kind of going through uh, this great book, um, this book called It's All Good by Boogie, which is all kind of like photography in the projects in New York. 
And interestingly, it's printed on matte paper versus glossy. And so I love Matt. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> that kind of became a conversation for us for the look of the film. It was like, I want it to feel like a matte printed photo. You succeeded. <laughs> so. you, you, you really did. It, it's, it can be so difficult with black and white too. And I, I will tell you that unless you really did your homework and you did your testing and everything else, which clearly you can tell just by oh, watching tested, that, that you did. We tested the hell out of this. Uh, when I see people who did not do that and think they can just go out and shoot black and white or they're trying to treat it like color, you end up usually with a very low con sort of look. I know you were using some filtration on this. Mm -hmm. I could tell, yeah. I mean, the way you you, you kept your, your levels clean, really your, your contrast and your levels and the, the fun. At, at what point did you did you ever say, did you end up doing any pushing or pulling processing or anything that you to, to change yeah. the so exposures? One thing Rada wanted was like pretty prominent grain. We did testing. We decided to push the whole film a stop. So we exposed at 400 and pushed a stop on the black and white. And then with the color, what we ended up doing was we pushed 5219 two stops, rated it at 2000. And then we actually did a bleach bypass on it because we were noticing that when we were even pushed, the grain, like 5219 push two stops is less grainy than double X box speed, which is insane. So uh, for, for our non-technical listeners, uh, basically modern Kodak color negative film stock uh, still significantly a cleaner image than the, the old films, the yeah. old black and white stock that you use for the rest of the movie. Yeah. So, uh, and, and they used a laboratory process to uh, be able to, to better match the, the grain. Uh, you got plenty of grain, though, in those night scenes. I'm thinking specifically of like when Rada is being taken to the Queen of the Bronx. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that whole sequence. And it all looks great. There's stuff shot in the back of the car. And is it super speeds that you used for this? We shot uh, super speeds, yeah. Uh, there's something about those flares, something about super yeah. speed flares, like uh, all that stuff driving where it's like uh, you're focused on the foreground and mm -hmm. you're just letting the, the lights and everything go yeah. out. That's, that's lovely stuff, but yeah, yeah, that totally looks like super speeds. Yeah, I was we, say. so, so we, uh, we set on super speeds for a couple of reasons. One, the whole movie was handheld. I was operating it. And so like super speeds for me, for my money, are the perfect combo of like fast, light, and small. They're still spectacular lenses. They're amazing, and, and, yeah. and they were all made. 40 plus years ago, 50 years ago, some of the, some of the original, like they're, they're modifications of standard speed lenses. And for our, our audience out there, I don't usually typically get on this path, but uh, I actually love to see that particular vintage being used. It's a, it's a really great look. Yeah. And, and so it, you know, it, it became like the black and white part of the, part of the creative conversation of how do we make this movie look timeless? Right. And then part of that was, you know, shoot on a 50 year old stock you know, I think there's something that happens in your brain. You probably, you, like, I don't know if you're aware of it, but I think, like, when you see something shot on film, particularly a stock that probably most black and white movies that you've seen since the 60s have been shot on. And then when you see lenses that, I mean, thousands of projects have been shot on, I think instantly your brain is like, okay, cool, this is, it puts it in that box instead of kind of a modern day current you know, aesthetic, yeah. yeah, yeah, like heavily digital, heavily worked on in the you know in the grade modern clean lenses. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, um, what was it still a? Um, did you actually get a photochemical finish, or did you do a DI? No, so we did a DI, but our DI was really was really just for power windowing, bringing highlights down, you know, and kind of getting a base level of of exposure and contrast throughout. Like this was a way less intense, I think, DI than than a lot of stuff, other stuff I've done. 
uh, speaking of which, let's let's talk about some of some of yep. the other stuff you've done. Uh, you had a really big hit last year with Clemency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell our listeners a bit about that project and how you came to be attached to that. Yeah, the director of Clemency, Chinoya Chuku, uh, and I did a short film called A Long Walk, probably 2013, I think. And a couple months after that, we had a great time, you know, hit it off. And then a couple months later, she was like, hey, listen, I'm working on this script. When I'm done, can I send you a draft? You know, a couple months later, I get the first draft of Clemency. It's probably 2014 now. Um, and it was one of those movies where it was supposed to go every year and the money would fall through or something would happen or, you know, like an actor schedule would change and we wouldn't be able to shoot. And then finally, uh, in 2018, we got it. We got it shot. The money came in. Alfred Woodard got herself attached. You know what I mean? And like all the puzzle pieces kind of came together and the stars aligned. We shot. And then it also ended up at Sundance last year. It did, which was, I mean, that was that was a huge, huge surprise that and, it was even at Sundance. And then tell our listeners what happened uh, at Sundance and after the fact. Yeah, so came to Sundance, had a great premiere, had a couple good screenings, sold out the Eccles, standing ovation the Eccles, amazing. And after the Eccles screening, I went home and I was like, all right, like that was amazing. I can't, you know what I mean? Like this, that was uh, like, how could that get better? Uh, a couple days later, I'm sitting in a taco shop in East LA, and uh, my wife is like, "Oh, hey, the the awards are tonight, right?" I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." So we order, order our tacos, you know, take our number, and we're sitting at the booth. And so I'm watching the live stream on my phone, and they get to grand jury prize for narrative feature, and I, all I remember is them saying, "And for the grand jury prize, like it, it, here." is a film that's like a singular vision of a woman up against and I was like no no way no way <laughs> and then they go they're like yes yeah. way yeah and they go uh you know the 2019 Sundance Grand Jury Prize goes to Clemency and I remember screaming in this taco shop I shoved my daughter out of the booth <laughs> And she, you know, uh, she these these are these LA moments that so many people uh, tell me about. Yeah, actually, right. So, yeah. And uh, she comes back in the booth. And she's like, and she's like, Daddy, everybody's looking at us. Stop, calm down. And I'm like, I don't care. We just want Sundance. We just want Sundance. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Uh, I should probably go back to that taco joint uh, this year when they're announcing awards. Yeah, no kidding. That might be that might have to be a, a tradition though. Uh, okay, so uh, that was a tremendous honor, and Clemency, of course, it got got a lot of buzz afterwards, and I know that it had a nice release, and I actually anticipate hearing some nice things about a uh, 40-year-old version here quite soon, because, uh, yeah, and you, you know, at Sundance, you don't have to tell us anything about uh, budgets or who you guys are talking to right now, but I have to imagine there are some people uh, circling around this film, so... Yeah, I mean, I've kind of deliberately stayed out of the loop on that. Good, good call. Like, <laughs> you know, I feel like with Clemency last year, I was so like, like I was in on everything, and like I was, oh, yeah. you know, we were, like I was texting, and we were, oh, we're talking to this person. Oh, you're meeting it for here with them, we, you know. And I remember there being so many like, so many kind of like near misses or almost bots and things, and something would go wrong. You know, I was such like a crazy stressful experience like being aware of that and that I was like I'm not I'm never dealing with that again I all right. So tell me about how you got into this crazy business. Did you always know that you wanted to work in the camera arts or even in movies or well, how, how, do, how does how do you come to be here? No, I always wanted to do something kind of in the arts. I didn't know necessarily what that was. As a kid, I loved to like I love to paint. I love to draw like I would build models. You know, I thought this is all, you know, this is all pre-CG. You know, I thought that a great job would be doing VFX for films, you know, building models, blowing stuff up. I thought that was like, okay, like I can, I can get behind this. You can get down with blowing yeah, right? some stuff up. Yeah, um, all right. And then as a kid, I, st- I 
took some acting lessons. Like I really wanted to kind of be involved somehow in like, I didn't want to wait until I was an adult to kind of like be involved and tell stories and that kind of thing. Uh, but when you're a kid, no one's going to hire you to do anything else. And so I started acting, did a bunch of like kind of off-Broadway plays as a kid and that kind of thing. And I thought then that like my path would be kind of like writer, director, actor in the kind of like, and which is also a lot of the films that, that I watched, like in all the New York filmmakers, that's what they did. Spike Lee. Yeah, it was like Spike Lee, Woody Allen, Ed Burns, even like Kevin Smith. You know what I mean? It's a genre into itself almost, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, okay, cool. Like, this makes sense. This is this is how it's going to go. And so I started making short films with my buddies in high school and that kind of thing and realized that, like, quickly that there was no one to hold the camera. And so I pulled back from being in the movies and just started shooting. I went to film school. I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York. Never heard of it. No, yeah. no I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> famous, famous, they would very famous say that about program. Me. Uh, oh, they're not going to be saying I, I, that anymore. I dropped out. No. You know what? The list of dropouts is at least as prestigious as the list of graduates. Yeah, exactly, you know, right. There, there's a, you were in good company. There's a lot of people who dropped out of there. So. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, so I went to I went to the School of Visual Arts and, you know, a lot of my friends in class and everything, uh, like when I'd show my films, they were like, oh, I love it. Who shot that? And I didn't even understand the question. I was like, well, I shot it. Who else would, you know what I mean? Who else would shoot my movie? And, uh, and there was kind of one of those things where they're like, oh, well, it looks really good. Come shoot my film. And so I started photographing other people's films in film school and kind of really fell in love with that aspect of filmmaking. And, you know, I fell in love with being able to translate someone's story into like the visual medium. Dropped out of film school, started working on sets in New York, like indie film in New York. Starting out as a camera person or starting out as a a grip? As a grip, okay. So I started gripping. And for for people who don't know what kind of strain a grip's body is under, uh, maybe you want to explain a little bit just about uh, the, the joy of gripping. Yeah, uh, the grips are the like salty pirates on a film set. They, uh, you know, the grips are in charge of all the sandbags, rigging stuff in the in the sky. You know, all Basically, that stuff. Basically, almost every heavy object. Well, no, there's there's heavy stuff that art and camera and other people have to yeah. transport too, but. Basically, it's it's in the grips. It's it's in their DNA that they have to carry. Well, what's the heaviest thing the grip to, the grip has to carry? It's the art department. That's right. <laughs> Uh, um, some production designers who are pissed off. Right now, so. <laughs> um, uh, no, but I mean, yeah. So like gripping, I mean, it, I mean, it's just a lot of punishing work. And, you know, I switched over to, I, I switched over to electric, which, you know, then involved also wrapping hundreds of feet worth of cable. Giant and, heavy you know, cable. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, I was doing all that stuff for a long time. Um, kind of worked my way up to gaffer. Was able to work with a really, a lot of really talented DPs. And I say, what was cool is it was also kind of right in the transition to digital. And so it was one of these things where I felt like I had like kind of an inside window because the monitors like were so clean that I could watch a DP put up a, you know, put a frame up and start lighting. And then I could watch what they're doing in real time on this, on an HD monitor, which was like the best film school you could possibly have. Like, you know, it would look great to me. And the DP would be like, mm, I don't know, I need something over here. And, you know, we'd light it. And then I'd go back to the monitor and be like, holy shit, this looks amazing now. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I, I, you can see the fruits of your labor. Exactly. You can see exactly what is it you're doing and what the impact exactly, is. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. uh, so it was great. So I had, you know, I got a lot of years of experience doing that. And uh, that's got to that's gotta help, though. Having the g background has really got to help when it comes to, to camera and lighting. So, yeah. yeah. And not just for working with crews. Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting, right? Because... I have like a base understanding of, of the lighting department, but what's interesting now is that I don't know a lot of the lights because I never used them because we're, everything's switching to LEDs. That's right. So it's this interesting thing where like that, that you can pick that up though. That that's something. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's... I'm not like, 
a Neanderthal when you know I mean, when it comes to uh, understanding like new technology, you know. But I don't have like the fits. Like if if a RE650 falls off the ceiling, like I could have that thing back up and running in 15 minutes. Sure. Not so with like <laughs> some of the new LED <laughs> yeah, lights. No, like, no, it's it's a it's a it's a little bit of a different world. Yeah. And, and actually, there's a lot of people who uh, still love working with tungsten specifically because tungsten has all those other wonderful parts of the spectrum that a lot of LEDs. Are yeah, I, I work I I work pretty much exclusively with tungsten. If the scene calls for tungsten, do you know what I mean? Like it looks great on skin tone. Yeah. Like, it, you know, LEDs are great, but I think there's something, um, and they're getting better literally every day. Oh, a lot of the early ones when that really did have something missing and that something missing was parts of the visible spectrum yeah. of light. So yeah, yeah I, you're not the only person to say this. A lot of people have, have complained about LEDs uh, in this regard, but, mm -hmm. but uh, you were, you were telling those story of, of how you got into camera. So, uh, yeah, so, so Jeannie, so, worked your way up um, to gaffer. I was a gaffer and I would, um, you know, I was still just shooting short films, you know, DPing stuff on the side. And, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of kind of like low budget shorts, low budget music videos, that kind of thing. And eventually was kind of able to make the, make the full switch over to, to DPing full time. Nice. Uh, how long ago was that? That was probably, uh, like 2008. I ended up shooting a season of ESPN's first like web series. Um, Ooh, I heard about that. That was a big deal. Uh, maybe that's not mine then. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't it, think anyone's heard of it. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe it was. Then. It was cool. It was this. It was a uh, like a Monday Night Football web series where like it was like a hosted thing. We would go travel to every city that Monday Night Football was in that week, and you know we do like an intro to the city. Like ESPN was trying to like they were trying to figure out what like a web series like what web content would be, and it turned out to not be this because they don't do it anymore. But you know what I mean. We were kind of in that early testing phase. Um, so essentially shot that thing and it kind of took me off the market for like a year yeah um, a job will do that to you for sure and so it was interesting i was kind of still working grip electric got that job and then when i was all done with it everyone all my contacts had moved on to other people because after a year of saying sorry not available you know this call stopped coming yeah that's tough so it was one of those things where i was like all right well you know i'm only going to focus on dping um and like that had been happening but my hand was kind of forced at that point so what's next for you? Are you concentrating on this and promotion of this for a while? Are you uh, moving on? Do you have something else already that's uh, lined up? Are you going to, um, you're going to keep going for features? What's your, what's unsure. your, what, yeah, what's unsure. your, uh, I'm talking to a bunch of features. It's like dating. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Talk, talking to a couple, you know, I'm not sure how it's going to, you got to have an excellent <laughs> rapport with, with the, the people involved. And, exactly. And, and so, and, um, so, so yeah, you're, you're, you're weighing your options. So yeah. Uh, you know, there's a couple features coming up this year, some potential TV stuff also. So, but yeah, I'm definitely kind of in that narrative in the narrative world. Nice. Yeah. Uh, TV is, is another big thing. I know a lot of people uh, moving into TV right now, too. Yeah. It's just because I think there's never been more TV. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, so, Eric Bronco, where can people find you? If they want to track your progress, are you on any of the Instagrams or the Twitter verses or any yeah, of those I'm on, uh, things? I'm on Instagram. Just my name, Eric Bronco. Yeah, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. We'll we'll put links then to your socials in yeah. our show notes, and Sounds so people good. can can track and find you and, and get in touch if they, if, cool. they, if they still want to. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So that was Eric Bronco. Awesome interview, Ilya. Great work. And uh, thank uh, you. Thank you. I, I'm actually really excited to see this movie. And actually, a friend of mine had invited me to a screening party that I was unable to go to uh, to see this very movie yesterday. So and and of course, uh, you can go stream 40 year old version right now. If you've got Netflix, it's on Netflix and uh, uh, you should check it out. It is, as you know, from the interview in black and white and it's gorgeous. Check it out. 40 year old version. 
And you can also watch The 40-Year-Old Virgin while you're at it, although I don't know if that's on Netflix. It, it's totally not the same movie. But it sound, yeah. they sound very different. <laughs> <laughs> and now, short ends. So, Ilya, what is your short end? What is your pet obsession of this week? Well, many, many years ago, when I used to live in Northern California and I was a, a student at uh, San Francisco State University's uh, film program, uh, one of the very first film festivals I ever went to was uh, the Mill Valley Film Festival. And yeah, I had a really great experience. I saw a lot of bunch, a bunch of great movies sort of on evenings and weekends. And it kind of became my local festival. Like, uh, I would say that there's really only a few big festivals out there, which are sort of like markets and get lots of, you know, celebrities and attention mm-hmm. and distribution deals and all that stuff. And pretty much every other festival in the world outside of like the, that small handful is sort of like a local neighborhood festival. But you meet really interesting people. You see really great movies, stuff that, that uh, people are really sort of championing and trying to get out there there and the programmers at the mill valley film festival have always done some really interesting stuff and they are undaunted with the pandemic and i'm not saying that they're going to do it as normal they're not but they're basically turning it into a drive-in festival now and so it's gonna be a drive florida film did that festival. too and and i know and, that because 20 seconds to live was playing in florida and i wasn't able to go but they were doing it as a drive-in I think that for the foreseeable future, for festivals that can afford to, that have the infrastructure, that have the space, I mean, certain, uh, like, I have to imagine that it might be really hard to do that in New York. It might be really hard to do that in certain, in certain areas. But when you've got the real estate, when you've got the space, if you can turn them into drive-ins and create a a fantastic experience, I think that's wonderful. Why not? Absolutely. Go support a festival. Go support the filmmakers. Go have a drive-in experience. You can really social distance and uh, have a great time. That is awesome. And uh, Mill Valley is, uh, I, I will second that. It's a really good festival. I believe my short conversations in like 2004 played there and uh, they were awesome. Yeah. They, and they they, uh, they spread out a little bit besides just Mill Valley. They're often in San Rafael and some other places too. But uh, but yeah, it's sort of like just north of San Francisco. And it's they they have interesting films that uh, they definitely have their, the programmers there uh, do some good work and they find some good stuff. Stuff that, I mean, that you, you don't just find everywhere. Well, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is kind of cool about the smaller festivals is when you go to the bigger festivals, obviously, you know, the Sundances, your Tribeca's, I've never been to South by Southwest, but I assume it's the same there. You see a lot of great, amazing stuff that blows your mind, but you also see a lot of stuff that's kind of like a head scratcher. Like, how did this get in here? I'm not going to name names. I would name them in private, but I'm not going (laughs) to, I'm not going to call any of them out. Sometimes it's a famous alum who came back with a film that's not all that great, but because they're a famous alum, they got in. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, you know, a movie that was made for the Showtime network and they have some pull because they're buying uh, a certain number of movies that they saw at Sundance or whatever. They've got some kind of pull. So some clunky, uh, garbagey film and I'm not singling out Showtime from (laughs) a Showtime and HBO, a Netflix gets into these festivals and uh, whatever. What I love about kind of the the regional festivals and Florida is like this too, is that they just program what they love. Like mm. they don't they don't have any influence necessarily. Like you know they're not going to get leaned on necessarily by uh, by a major network or by a major distributor. I mean to a degree they might they might they might get a little bit of pressure, but Lionsgate isn't going to care that much if a regional festival doesn't program a film that they're kind of pushing in. So you tend to get just amazing programming at a lot of those festivals. I, I'm always blown away when I go to the Florida film festival, how it's, it's one of the best uh, curated festivals I've ever been to. And, you know, I've been to some other festivals. In fact, I've been to a lot of other festivals and I can't, 
make i'm glad glad to hear that about florida uh mill valley is great if anyone has an opportunity to go to the florida film festival just go it just get a festival pass and just go see stuff all all freaking day i've never i've seen films at every festival that weren't my taste but i've never seen anything at florida that i'm like how the hell did that get into a festival they they choose good stuff oh no i've been to plenty of festivals where it you're scratching your head going i ought to be doing something else with my life right now i hate to say this i've probably done that more at sundance than any other festival Oof. Yeah, I've I've done it once or twice there for sure. And I've and I've seen also some of the best stuff I've ever seen at Sundance. I mean, it's just the trade-off. It's a mixed bag for yeah. sure. Uh, well, the Mill Valley Film Festival, the forty-third one, I believe, uh, is starts. Uh, it's already started. I think it started on the eighth, and it runs through the eighteenth. So, uh, if you're around the area and uh, want to try and, and drive in and see a cool movie, uh, it, it's going on right now. I think the first time I went to that must have been early, maybe mid nineties, and wow. I, I've been been back several times. I, I would always try to like coordinate a trip to visit family and stuff at the same time. That it was a simpler time. You were on your way yep. to go see Pearl Jam, and uh, you stopped right. at the Mill Valley Film Festival. I did see Pearl Jam actually in 93. Oh. Wow. <laughs> yes. Performing uh, free in Golden Gate Park. It was, fun. It was occurring to me, uh, this is apropos of nothing, but like since COVID started, I haven't had a professional haircut and my hair hasn't been this long since you could go see Nirvana live. So. That's right. <laughs> nice. All right. So Ben, what's, what's your short end? Uh, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, I, I kind of just wanted to talk a little bit about the, I, I hate the term IP, but that's what it is. Intellectual property of Video Palace, which is the podcast that I co-wrote and directed. I did not create it. It was created by Mike Manello and uh, Nick uh, Brachia. And Those guys I, ever done anything before? <laughs> well, Mike was part of the, uh, as well as me, was part of the team that created the Blair Witch Project. Never heard of it. <laughs> and uh, Mike is, is seriously a, a crazy mastermind. So it kind of showed up, I won't say pre-sold to Shutter, but Shutter was very interested in it and when Nick and Mike gave us the the basic outline that they had kind of sketched out and Bob and I kind of filled it in and and came in and, and pitched it like we knew that we were walking into a friendly uh situation where like they wanted to like it, they wanted to buy it. In fact, we knew they wanted it made in a crazy fast hurry. It was 2 years ago in May and they wanted it. They were like when we first talked to them it was probably April and they were like in a perfect world we could have this in July. In truth, we recorded it in July. They had it at the beginning of September, which is still remarkably fast. But true to form, Mike kind of had handed us something that was kind of rich with mythology. And that's sort of his stock and trade. Uh, His day job is he owns an ad agency. It's hard to call it an ad agency, but they do very unconventional advertising and marketing related stuff. A lot for the entertainment industry. The company's called Campfire. You can check them out at campfirenyc.com. And so they will often like like, for instance, uh, when The Purge had the TV series, they did a thing at Comic-Con where they created like a pop-up store that was like Party City, but it was Purge City and it had Purge products you could you could buy. Like they always kind of find another angle into the, <laughs> the story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, super brilliant like that. Yeah. So we did season one of a Video Palace. I won't go into the specifics of why season two didn't happen already. I, I am dying to do it. And we have a couple of different ways into a season two that we were excited about. But for whatever reason, it just didn't fit the bill for what Shudder was looking to do at that moment, even though they were happy with the with the first season. So Manello and Nick 
they figured out a way to kind of expand the IP. And so that's what this book is that we were talking about earlier. So they went to a bunch of esteemed horror writers and created a book of short stories, basically fleshing out the mythology of the eyeless man, who again is kind of like a dark specter that hangs over the whole season, but isn't like a main character. And they came up with this idea, and I think it's an interesting, it's, it's brilliant how Mike did it, and I think it's something that more people could do, because the IP originated as a podcast for Shudder, and now we're going to broaden it. And, and so if you're a fan of the podcast and you read the book, I think you'll be very, very satisfied, but it's not a direct continuation of the story. It's not an adaptation of the story. There are stories that tie in very, very subtly to the podcast. And then there's one that's an interview with one of the people from the podcast. That's just that the story is literally just an interview with her. But like my story has nothing to do with the narrative of Video Palace. It takes place in the 1980s at a self-help seminar. But it finds a way to bring in the eyeless man, and it's almost as horrific as actual 1980s self-help seminars. So I'm looking forward to the uh, the audiobook version of this because then it'll further complete my podcasting experience, and I can I can listen to it as I drive. <laughs> well, so. And they are doing an audiobook, but um, I, I figured they had to. They had to. That's like yeah. That's... But I think it's a lesson for people who are creating content because. I've never met anyone who like looked down their nose at the fact that we did a podcast at all. I think that sometimes it's a little confusing in the entertainment business when it's like, wait, you make movies. So why are you doing something that's just audio? And it's like storytelling is storytelling, you know, and you use the tools that you have. If you're making a TV show, you're doing it for a smaller screen. If you're making a feature film that's going to play theaters, you do it for a bigger screen you know, what, whatever, whatever it is. And in this case, you're doing it for the theater of the mind, as they say, you know, with, with audio, but you can use these tools and believe me, it is way cheaper to make a three hour podcast than it would be to make an hour and a half long movie, infinitely cheaper, so much cheaper, even with full SAG contracts and actors who you you've heard of. And that's kind of the business model of companies like Gimlet, Gimlet, who made Homecoming, and now there have been two seasons of Homecoming on Amazon. Uh, Homecoming started as a podcast. And, you know, quite a few uh, documentary-style podcasts, like Song Exploder is now on Netflix. I don't know if you've caught that, but that, that that's I great... haven't, and I love Song Exploder. I didn't know that that was on Netflix. And it, They got a four-episode run right now. And obviously yeah. The Vow, which was my short end a few weeks ago, uh, I, I would be shocked if it didn't get catapulted into people's minds the way it was catapulted into mine from the, the podcast Uncover Escaping Nexium. It is a way to build an IP. And it's tricky because, you know, how do you engage people? It's it's hard to do it with a traditional radio play. And w- although Homecoming is kind of a traditional radio play, just very modernized in its in its approach. But it requires uh, creativity. And I think that in the case of this book, and I'm not taking any credit for the book at all. It was pure uh, Mike and Nick doing it. It was very creative of them to go like, okay, we can take this and and spin this off into a book. And then they cut a deal with Simon & Schuster. And you could do that with Simon & Schuster, but you could also do that and self-publish on Amazon just just as easily, probably a whole lot more easily, actually. It's just you're not going to have much of a budget to work with. But if you have an IP that you wanted to build out, it's like finding ways to... uh, to, to integrate these things in, uh, we used to call it transmedia. I think the transmedia, trans, I remember trans, that <laughs> transmedia went out of fashion, uh, within the last 10 years. And I don't know why, but that's all it is. You're, you're, you're telling the story in different ways in different mediums, but you're kind of dancing around the same story world and finding different ways to do it. Cause like, you know, people ask, well, would you want to do it as a TV show or a movie? And we're like, 
yeah, of course we would. <laughs> but <laughs> but this is what we had to work with, and we're excited to do it here too. I mean, like you know, I I, I kept saying you know sort of when we were doing it, like don't make it a movie. I don't want it to be a movie. I want it to be a podcast. And and that was you, you just kind of embrace the tropes and the language of that and just steer right into that. Uh, th- there's a surprising number of uh, movies that, of course, started as comic books. But I think it's really interesting today when I see movies themselves also getting a simultaneous sort of like comic book companion to the movie. I mm-hmm. think that all, the way that you can sort of play with and modify your stories by adding in all these other ways to experience it, if you've got strong enough, you know, to, to make it as unsexy as possible strong enough ip the collective you know intellectual property and it can span through uh, all different forms of uh, of media that you can uh, get into i mean why not i mean if you've got a fan for something and a fan is really 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 hardcore about whatever it is they're going to try to find every way they can to experience more of whatever it is i mean that's how i am as a fan when i'm a fan of something like john carpenter's the thing and then they release uh, you know the thing board game or whatever or uh, you know my friend i probably talked about on here Seth Wolfson who has a, an escape room in Seattle and he made an Evil Dead 2 escape room in Seattle like I, I'm fans sure if, flock to that I'm sure if there was an Aronofsky's pie board game you'd own it you'd oh probably my God. also go to the escape room you'd I could also... just get go I could just I could just get the the game the board game go uh <laughs> Anyway, so so Ben, I think that just about wraps us up. Uh, who do we have to thank this week? As always, uh, number one, Ben Katz. Holy crap. Ben Katz making us sound not stupid. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks, Ben. We, um, we, we, I know we don't make it easy on you. Let's, uh, let's thank Alana Cody. Alana, Alana thank Cody, you for... who is honestly kicking so much ass and getting us so many amazing interviews. We have some really kick-ass interviews coming up, and, uh, and they, none of them would have happened without her diligence. Some of them took some real diligence to get going. A hundred percent. And, of course, Kay Salatracci, uh, you know, thank Probably you. not listening to this. Probably, probably not listening to our thanks. Yeah, uh, just just through the sort of, like, collective <laughs> unconscious, thank you. Okay, thank you, Case. So ben, where can people find you? Can people find um, you anywhere? Uh, yeah, go check out my newly, uh, mostly simplified website, benrockonline.com. By the way, update on uh, on the boat company that won't let me have my really that won't let me have benrock.com. Yeah, so it occurred to me that they have a Facebook group, and it said you know replies usually within five hours or something. So I'm like, okay, let me see if I can get a reply out of them. And so I went on, and it's the Brunswick company that owned, mm-hmm. that that bought. Marine One, which bought the Ben Rock Company, Ben Rock being not related to me in any way, but a company that made fucking boats in the 1990s. And uh, and so Marine One had BenRock.com and then Brunswick bought them. And so I've been like emailing over the years, emailing executives and stuff there. No one gets back to me ever. So finally, I, I was like, well, you know, someone will respond to me. And I and so I left the message like three weeks went by and then they responded <laughs> That right now at this time they're not willing to give up that domain. <laughs> I'm, nev- oh, I'm never going to have my own name. That's a shaggy dog right there. You, you uh, built that up and built that up and built that up. I really thought that there was something, but no. your big update is is that they're still not willing. to No, well they got back to me though. I mean, actually, that is a big update. They got back to me and they said, "Go fuck yourself." In essence. <laughs> Uh, nothing like having a major corporation tell you to go fuck yourself. That's, uh, that's yeah. A <laughs> if I ever have an opportunity to buy a boat, I will not buy it from them. 
Mm, that's right. Or maybe any of the other products that Brunswick makes. They make a lot of stuff. Oh my God. They're a huge company. Oh man. Nobody <laughs> cares about this. All right. So anyway, <laughs> thank you for listening and we will see you in just a few days, not even a week, just a few days uh, with a new interview on the cinematography podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.